Christians, I am actually going to transition now into a short message, but let me pray before I do that, so if you would pray with me. Our dear Father, I thank you so much for this church, this body and believers, from children to youth to adult to old. Um, I just thank you um, for the diversity in this body. I thank you that you're at work in all generations, and I thank you so much for being at work in the lives of these students as well. Now, Lord, as we dive now into your word, I pray that um, you would speak to each one of us, that we'd be able to take away uh, what you'd want from this, uh, from this message, and um, just pray that it would bless us as we go about our weeks and our lives. We pray things in your name. Amen. So we just reflected on all the various youth events and Wednesday night programming and conferences and trips over the past year, and I continue to stir up a deep passion and burden that I have. And that passion and burden is to raise up the next generation. And I believe this responsibility is not just placed on the parents, it's not just placed on the youth pastor or the youth leaders, but I believe it's placed on every one of us. Every person in this room, every follower of Christ, has this responsibility to raise up the next generation. And I also think it has a lot to do with marbles. Yes, marbles. Just going to leave that there, and we'll come back to it here in a little bit. Be a little cliffhanger. But uh, before we get into marbles, let's open up our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy, Old Testament, fifth book of the Bible. Um, we'll be in chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. And while you're opening to there, let me give you a little context quickly of where we're at uh, in the biblical narrative. So after God uses Moses as the leader um, uh, to lead the exodus of the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, God establishes a covenant with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And the purpose of this covenant can be seen clearly in Exodus 19, 5 through 6, where God says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And you see here that uh, both the terms of the covenant, obeying God's commands, and then the outcome of the covenant, that Israel was to be um, a model nation for the world. They were to go and teach others about God. Israel was to be a nation of priests, prophets, and missionaries to the world. God's intent was for them to be a distinct people, a nation set apart who pointed others towards God. Unfortunately, due to sin and rebellion and idolatry, Israel often failed in living up to this task. You can see this happen right away in the book of Numbers, which is right before Deuteronomy. Uh, Israel has a disastrous road trip through the wilderness, and the whole Exodus generation, including Moses himself actually, disqualifies themselves from even entering the promised land. By the time we get to the book of Deuteronomy, the Exodus generation has died off, and this new generation of Israelites is just getting ready to cross the Jordan River and enter the promised land for the first time. And in Deuteronomy, Moses is giving his final challenge to the Israelites, to this new generation before Moses dies, and he's calling on this new generation of Israel to be faithful to the covenant with their God, hopefully much more faithful than their parents' generation was. So let's read together Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Uh, the, the words will also be on the side screen if you'd like to follow along there. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. 
so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping his decrees and commands that I give you, and that so you may enjoy a long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well for you, and that you may increase greatly in a land with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So I don't think it takes much to catch the heart of raising up the next generation in this passage. But before we get into that, I wanted to take a moment to examine uh, two verses that are extremely significant in both uh, Jewish and Christian religion, and that's verses 4 and 5. Um, likely hear those before. Steph focused on these. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So these two verses are actually such a big deal that they're given their own name, the Shema. In Judaism, the Shema is seen as a central affirmation of the Jewish faith, and it's traditionally recited twice, every single day, once in the morning and once in the evening. In Christianity, obviously, these, voices, these verses are also extremely important. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is asked by the teachers of the law, of all the commandments, which is the greatest? And Jesus answers, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. You may notice that Jesus adds with all your mind, but the point he makes is perfectly clear. Jesus perfectly understood the essence of the Mosaic law and defined the law to its core principles. First, love the Lord with everything you have. And second, love your neighbor as yourself. But where did the name Shema come from? Kind of a weird name. Glad you asked. Uh, Shema is a Hebrew word. And it's likely translated in your Bible there in verse 4 to hear or listen or attention, depending on your translation. So when it says hear Israel or attention Israel, that's that word Shema. So, so really, uh, Moses is saying Shema, O Israel, right? And I want to pause on this for a second because when we see the word hear, we may just think of letting sound enter, sound waves enter into our ears, right? But the word Shema is so much more than that. You see, fully understood to Shema is to pay attention to, to focus on, to, and then to respond to and obey. So in fact, in ancient Hebrew, there isn't a separate word for obey. Uh, so in the Bible, if you wanted to say, I will listen and do what you say, or I will listen and obey, you would just use a single, single word Shema and just say, I will Shema, right? It's both. It's both listening and focusing on it and then also responding to it and obeying. As a parent of a three-year-old son, I can absolutely relate to there being a difference between my son merely hearing something I say and actually listening and doing it, right? I find myself in a similar type of interaction like this a lot. I'll say, Easton, what did dad just say? And he'll respond and be like, that I need to finish my food before playing. And I'll be like, all right, well, I know you're cute and all, but then why are you 20 feet away from the dinner table and playing when you still have a plate full of food, right? You see, hearing the words was no problem. But for him to actually shema, to listen to the words and then obey them, that is much more difficult. And I don't think that he is alone in that. I think that's true for every person. 
that when we hear God's word, it's easy to just read it or hear it, but to respond to it, to focus on it, and then follow through and obey it is a lot more difficult. And this is why I'm going to pause on this for a second, because by starting with the word Shema, Moses is saying, listen, Israel, pay attention to this, focus on this. The Lord is our God. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the creator of the universe. So Israel, because you're paying attention to this and because of who God Almighty is, then respond by loving God with all your being. And maybe that's the most important challenge you need to hear today, to simply shema, to listen to, to respond, pay attention to the word of God. You may have heard this verse throughout your entire life, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. But are you actually doing it? All right, now let's get to the second point that is really resonating with me. And that is that the call of Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9, is not only to individually live out the Shema, but also to pass it on to the next generation. You can see this illustrated in the verses right before and right after the Shema. Verse 2 says, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live. And then verse 7 makes it crystal clear, if you didn't catch that before, it says, Impress them on your children. In other words, pass this on to the next generation. And Moses goes a little deeper and detailed as an instruction in the second half of verses 7 all the way through 9. Moses presents an all-encompassing call to the people to raise up the next generation to live out the Shema. Moses instructs them to do this in all settings. You see in the middle of verse 7, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. He instructs them to do this all day long, when you lie down and when you get up. It needs to be our highest priority. In verse 8, it says, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. They are to be front of mind at all time. So families in the church, let's take an honest self-assessment, just a silent self-assessment. Are we praying regularly with our children? Are we reading the Bible to them or with them? In our busy schedules, are we making church a priority? Are we using our God-given gifts to serve alongside them? Do we take opportunities like during car rides or uh, during meals to talk about God, about how our own faith is incorporated into our daily lives, our work, our activities, and our friendship? Do we take opportunities to uh, sing along with them worship songs or listen to worship songs? As a parent, you're not going to be able to filter everything you, your kid sees or hears or watches, but when they might watch a movie or read a book, are we stopping to have conversations and ask questions like, hey, where is God in this story? Or what claim is being made, about how, what claim is being made in this story about how life works? And please know my heart in this. I'm not trying to guilt or shame any parents. Parenting is hard. And as a father, I'm saying this because I need to be reminded of this myself probably more than anybody else does. But this call is clear. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down, when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. Passing the love of God on to the next generation needs to happen while they're still under our roofs. That's what Moses is getting to in verse 9 when he highlights our houses and our gates. This one is a little more subtle in this passage, but there's a principle laced throughout Scripture on the importance of instilling faith during the formative years of a child's life while they're still under our care. One of the most well-known passages of Scripture where this idea is found, one that many in in this room probably know, is Proverbs 22.6. Train children on the way they should go, and even when they're old, 
they will not part from it, or they will not turn from it. And we love to hold on to this verse as a promise, but in reality, we should probably take it more as, as Moses is saying it in Deuteronomy 6, where we take this as a call or a command to impress them on our children. Uh, we don't have the time right now to read it, but for another passage, parents, I would encourage you to read all of Psalm 78. It is all about this uh, passing on to the next generation. And in the New Testament, you see this idea again, such as in Ephesians 6.4, fathers do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in training and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in training and instruction of the Lord. And this finally brings me back to marbles. So, Maybe it's been driving you nuts. Is this like a guess how many marbles are in the jar type of deal? Maybe you have your own guess. So go ahead to the person next to you. Make a guess how many marbles are in this jar. Talk to your neighbor. Anyone confident enough to yell it out loud? 250. 251. Ooh. 807? 647. Um... Well, the actual number is 936 marbles. 936 marbles. Um, and if you got that right, um, you win absolutely nothing, and you probably should have saved your really great grass for something where you could actually win something. So sorry. Um, but this number, 936, has meaning when it comes to raising up the next generation. And it's because uh, this is how many gray hairs it has given me. No, that's not true. Um, (laughs) On average, it is 936 weeks from when a child is born until graduation. On average. Obviously, born different times of the year. But that is 0 to 18 on average. So letting one of these marbles represent a single week of a child's life You have approximately 936 marbles coming out of the jar between while your child, until your child is an adult. And my wife, Alexis, and I were eagerly anticipating uh, the arrival of our second child later this summer. Uh, And from that moment that that little baby boy, that precious baby boy is born, the countdown starts. With each passing week, a marble comes out of the jar. Now, I know there's a limited amount of newborns in our church, so let's break this down a little bit for some different transition periods. Um, If you have a child entering kindergarten, you are already down 312 marbles, and there's now just 624 weeks until graduation. Uh, At our church, Summit Youth Ministry begins at 7th grade, and uh, I know when an incoming 7th grader enters our ministry I have 312 weeks, 312 marbles with them. For an illustration of that, we are down 624 marbles to just 312 F. This is 312 hormonally charged marbles right here. <laughs> and if you have a preteen at home, preteen at home, you probably know about losing your marbles. So, um, And then uh, we have a ton of juniors entering their senior year. And if you want to get a little sad, uh, by the time... Oh, someone stole my jar. (laughs) Oh, nope. Sorry, accusing people of stealing. I have it here. Just didn't see it. We are down to just 52 marbles until graduation. That's it. 52. All right, so... 
I know what you're thinking. Thank you, for Phil, for equally depressing me and freaking me out. <sighs> Please know neither of those emotions are my goal. I also know that some of you might be resistant to the idea of a countdown. You might be thinking, hey, don't make me focus on how much time I have left. I need to be focused on the here and now. And I hear that. But the visual of the marbles, it isn't mine. Um, it comes from the folks at Orange. And Orange is an organization that focus on the, focuses on the strategic partnership between the church and family in raising up the next generation. And Reggie Joyner, the CEO of Orange, says, uh, when it comes to keeping, says this when it comes to keeping track of your marbles. He says, when you see how much time you have left, you tend to get serious about the time you have now. I'll say it again. When you see how much time you have left, you tend to get serious about the time you have now. So we are not counting down with dread. Instead, we are paying attention to the time we have left so that we will all be motivated to make the countdown count. You obviously don't stop being a parent after high school graduation. You are a parent for life and will always have the ability to influence your kids and show them the love of God. However, we also know that time does not slow down and your, child is only, your, your, your kid is only a child for a limited window. And we have a set amount of time while they are children to live out God's command to impress the Shema on our children, to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord, to pass it on. Now I want to pause and make sure for a moment that we're all tracking. Grandparents and parents, you are probably likely healthily tracking right now. But I fully recognize in this room we have empty nesters, not yet parents, singles, and we also have youth and children in the age group that I'm talking about right now. So you might be thinking, well, this is kind of a waste of time for me. And here's where you come in. And don't miss this. You are absolutely essential to this. This is the responsibility of the family, yes, but also of the church. I believe the biblical model outlined here in Deuteronomy, here, O Israel, and in also other places in the Bible, point to the home where the place where primary discipleship of the child happens. But the church family is where the work in partnership works in partnership with the home. It's really meant to be a both-and situation. Uh, D6, an organization that our church users uses for Sunday school curriculum and whose name D6 comes from the Deuteronomy 6 passage that we read over this morning, puts it this way. It says, parents are the primary disciplers in the home and the church is the primary equipper of parents. And when I see this partnership fully functioning, it's a beautiful thing. When the, the church, we know parenting is hard, but the church is coming alongside parents and supporting them and helping them and also investing into the lives of, the, of their children. Also, a commentary I read uh, said that there's times where the church has its regular opportunity to play to be equipped with the parents, but there might be some times where kids don't, have, uh, don't come from a Christian background or a Christian home. And in that place, the church can do its own role and has a special role of also beginning to play the role of family. It says, teaching children should be expected of the church also, especially in places where most of the members do not have the privilege of growing up in Christian homes. The church provides spiritual parents to those who don't have earthly parents to perform the task. This can be done through Sunday school, church Bible studies, and Sunday worship. And we see this lived out in the New Testament in the book of Titus. Paul writes in Titus 1.4, To Titus, my true son in our common faith. You see, there's a special mentorship role that Paul has where Titus is Paul's adopted son in the faith. 
Later in Titus 2, Paul writes about how every member of the church has a role to play, that older women should train the younger women to love their husbands and children, that older men should be self-controlled, sound in faith, love and endurance, and that in everything set young men an example by doing what is good. So young, old, men, women, and children, we all have a vital role to play. So whether it's present in the home or not, you are important as a member of the church into the spiritual development of the next generation. And in the world of youth ministries, there's something known as a five-to-one ratio. The idea is for any kind of weekly program or event, you want to have at least one adult leader present for every five kids. Uh, the general thought is this provides good like safety coverage and you just make sure nothing gets burnt down, right? Um, but Chap Clark is a great youth ministry mind at Fuller Theological Seminary, and he challenged this ratio. He asked the question, what if we flipped that five-to-one ratio? What if instead of just seeking for a safety minimum of one adult for every five kids, we were to try to get five caring adults to invest in the spiritual journey of just one kid? Research has found that this five-to-one ratio to have five caring adults in the church in addition to the parents is hugely beneficial in leading to a sticky faith in the life of a young person. In other words, in leading to a lifelong faith in Jesus Christ that sticks into adulthood, a faith that will continue for a lifetime. So dream with me here for a moment. What if all the moms and dads in our church were able to confidently identify five individuals that are intentionally investing into their child's faith journey every step of the way. Adults who are willing to invest in their kids in little, medium, and big ways. Adults willing to model faith and teach kids how to love God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their strength. There's only one way this can happen, and that's by all of us caring enough to step up to do this. Right? The broader community, they might provide some great educators and coaches and teachers. And some, several of those people might love Jesus, but they are limited in some of the things they can say when it comes to faith. But the church is the place where we can fully and unapologetically focus on our kids' faith journey with Jesus. So whether you're an empty nester, a single adult, a married couple that doesn't have kids, or an upper-class student, what if you were willing to intentionally invest into the life of a member of the next generation? To start, it just takes one intentional conversation and one intentional relationship. So if you can't tell, this stuff gets me pretty fired up. Uh, I know we've covered a lot of ground, but I want to make sure you walk away with some action steps. Um, to pass on the Shema to the next generation. So just to recap uh, the message, here's some practical steps that might be worth considering for you. First, and this goes for every person in this room, let's Shema the Shema. Let's be a church that does not just merely hear the call of God uh, to love him with all our being. Let's be a church that actually listens, pays attention to that, and then responds and obeys and, and incorporate that into every aspect of our lives. Second, and now I'm mainly talking to parents right here, let's make the countdown count. Maybe the visual of marbles that we've used this morning might be helpful in your own home. Um, you could buy your own glass jar and marbles if you like. Um, but I, I see it as something that could be helpful. Like at the end of every week, you pull out two marbles. With one marble, you pause and reflect, how did I do this last week? Did I have intentional faith conversations with my child? Did I read the Bible with them? Did I talk about God with them? All the, all the different things we talked about, right? And then you set that marble aside, because that marble is gone. And then with the second marble, you take time to plan and to pray, asking God for uh, wisdom and courage as you go about in another week of your life, 
trying to lead your kid in living out the Shema. And then third, and making and this is now talking to everyone, non-parents in this room as well, let's invest into the next generation. So I uh, don't hear this as my recruiting pitch. Um, I'm not trying to fill up volunteer spots. Instead, I want to invite you to the biblical call to raise up the next generation. Sure, you could do that in an official volunteer role, but you can also simply start by getting intentional with relationships God has already has present in your life. And then finally, let's identify the five. So parents, students, what if you sat down together and came up with five individuals who could intentionally invest into your child's spiritual journey and point them to Jesus Christ? And then what if you actually approach those individuals and let them know that, hey, I'm willing to be invested in. If you're a student, say, hey, I would love to be invested into, I would love support in this area. And for adults, what if you took the time to pray to God? Is there a child, a grandchild, someone at church, a neighbor, someone I can intentionally and consistently invest into and pray for? Then what if you approached that family and asked, hey, could I be a mentor in your child's life? The bottom line this morning, when you see how much time you have left, you tend to get serious about the time you have now. So may we be a church who will shema the shema and we'll make the countdown count. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. Um, even when sometimes it's hard to live out, I thank you for your commandment to love you with all who we are and pass this love on to the next generation. I pray for wisdom for parents in this room, for grandparents. I pray for wisdom as they go through uh, the difficult task of um, raising their children, but we also know it's one that you've equipped them for, that you're with them, you provide your Holy Spirit for wisdom, you provide your word, you provide uh, fellow church members to support them. So I just pray that they feel supported in this endeavor. Um, we pray for those in this room who might feel stirred in their heart um, to be intentional about investing in the next generation. I provide uh, that those converse, I pray that those conversations would happen and uh, that you would provide in that area. Uh, Lord, we love you so much. Uh, I pray now as we go on the rest of our days and week, we know that you're with us always, and I pray that we rely on you. We love you, Lord, praise things in your name. Amen.